0: I want to quickly uh, thank uh, Barry Burkett from Eastern Kentucky University. He suggested that a conversation on andragogy might be useful. And that was an email we received back in March. And wanted to let you know, Barry, we didn't forget about it. And here's your podcast. Go down the list. Those experiences are very important. And having those students bring that experience out so that the other students can hear from it and understand that there's not one answer, but multiple answers from multiple contexts, I think helps build that.
1: And surely those shades of gray are reflective of the real world in which the adults are actively participating in.
0: And I think that's a criticism I would make of pedagogy is that often this we are approaching things that there's a right answer to this question, whereas in andragogy, I think a lot of times the answer often is, it depends.
2: It can be an unfolding journey.
0: You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In
1: 1970, a man by the name of Malcolm Knowles published a book titled The Modern Practice of Adult Education, Andragogy versus Pedagogy. The term andragogy, that is the art and science of how adults learn, was introduced to the masses forever changing the conversation of how educators should strive to meet the needs of the matured matriculator. What some may not realize is that Knowles didn't actually coin the term andragogy. That honor goes to Alexander Kapp, a German grammar school teacher in 1833. Knowles was, however, the first to use the term as to include an organized framework and comprehensive theory of how the adult mind is situated differently for learning than that of a child. Knowles felt that the traditional approach of education as transmission of culture was not suitable for teaching adults about how to keep up with the increasingly rapid change within society and the workplace. After all, the learning needs of an adult are sculpted by the unique circumstances in which they often find themselves. Adults have lived longer lives and therefore have accumulated a rich reservoir of experiences to draw upon. Knowles claims that children store knowledge for future use, where adults acquire information for the here and now. This points to the fact that adults have specialized learning needs related to their social roles rather than for the physiological and mental development of a child. Thus, the motivation to learn is often intrinsic rather than externally motivated. For our purposes here, it may also be pertinent to look at how the adult learner is situated in higher ed. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, in 2015 there were 11.8 million college and university students under the age of 25, and 8.1 million students 25 years and older. In addition, a US News survey states that the average age of students in a ranked online bachelor's program is 32 years old. We can gather from these numbers that an understanding of the nature of adult learning is critical for understanding a significant portion of the student population in higher ed, both on ground and online. For our session today, I would like to consider Knowles' andragogy through a critical lens and consider how it may or may not be applicable within the higher education classroom. But first, let's start with introductions. Joining me today are...
0: Stephen Crawford.
3: Jeanette Senegal. Celia Kachwitiwa.
1: And I'm Aaron Kraft. All right, first question. So most countries have set the age of majority to 18. So we can infer that once the student turns 18, educators need to adapt their curriculums according to Knowles' Assumptions and Principles, right?
0: Are we sure about that? I mean, let's start with the fact that not everyone develops at the exact same pace and rate. So all because you had your 18th birthday doesn't mean that you are a fully functional adult who can reason through things as an adult would. We know two things. The age of adolescence ranges from ages 10 to 19, and some may say it's actually older than that now. Um, the way s- certain societies do things. And we also know the brain doesn't finish developing until age 25.
2: That's a good point. So what does it mean to become an adult ent- anyway? From the perspective of some of the developmental psychologists, it's, it's not necessarily a set concept that the end point of growing up is to become a quote-unquote adult anyway. And with the variance in neurodevelopment, we might not all end up in the same exact profile anyway.
3: I like to think of 18 as one of those transitional years. It's transitioning into becoming a more mature adult. It doesn't necessarily mean that as soon as you hit that 18th birthday, you are ready for complete, mature decision-making. With that being said, thinking about higher education, that it's reflected in the way that courses are are created. When you think about a 100 level course compared to a four 500 level course, it's quite different in the teaching strategies and how professors work with those students.
1: Yeah, and I definitely was not an adult at 18. So considering that and the fact that a majority of your freshmen and sophomores in college and university are not too far from 18, When is andragogy appropriate for higher ed, or is it even appropriate for higher ed at all?
3: I would say that I see more andragogical methods being used in, let's say, master's programs or closer to the senior year in higher education, if undergrad, Not so much in those lower level courses, especially when there's a large amount of students that also creates a difference in the teaching strategies that are being used and whether they're using pedagogical strategies or andragogical strategies. Mm -hmm. That makes a a difference. Yes. I
2: think conceptually you touched on the idea of motivation and intrinsic versus extrinsic. And for some students, they are still sort of building that locus of control mentality that they're kind of in control of their own destiny. They want to know what they want to be when they. Grow up, quote unquote, and some of that is the conversation that can occur when they're in college. They can start to learn about where they do want to get to, and perhaps build some of that ownership. So it could be a parallel construction.
0: At the same time, I think about the tenet of life experiences and bringing that to the educational experience through an andragogical approach. The problem is not even some of our graduate students have enough life experiences to leverage, uh, especially if they went straight from high school to college, straight from that undergraduate program immediately into an undergraduate program. And some of our PhD students don't have enough life experience to really leverage things. They, they need a different framework. But returning students, for an example, who are coming back to education like in our nursing program with the post a number of our students in that program earned a bachelor's degree went out to work and then they're career changers and so they're coming back into the nursing program I think some of our graduate students in, in the nursing programs they've worked in hospitals and in clinics for several years in some cases not all cases and therefore they're bringing those experiences back Definitely you need to have, I think, an andragogical approach makes a lot of a sense because you need to leverage those life experiences and treat them as an adult. But when you don't have those experiences, now you have to come up with a framework to support a student who who needs to gain that.
1: Well, speaking of life experiences, uh, respect is a prime factor of Noel's andragogy. Adults have a lot of personal experience and appreciate this being used as a learning resource. So how can instructors honor the wealth of experience that the adult learner brings to the classroom?
0: I, I would say one of the first areas I would recommend goes back to the locus control that Jeanette mentioned. From that point of view, ask questions in discussion boards or have projects where you're bringing your perspective into the picture. Even our 18 to 22-year-old undergrads, that, that common domain of, of, of students, they have a cultural experience, when, especially when we talk about, you know, community health. You know, they may have come from a well-to-do, higher socioeconomic st- uh, status or from a different one. And it's like, how do we deal with that population? If you grew up white, how do you, how do you address that uh, uh, community? If you drew up, grew up Hispanic, if you grew up, just go down the list. Those experiences are very important. And having those students bring that experience out so that the other students can hear from it and understand that there's not one answer, but multiple answers from multiple contexts, I think helps build that.
1: And surely those shades of gray are reflective of the real world in which the adults are actively participating in.
0: And I think that's a criticism I would make of pedagogy is that often this, we are approaching things that there's a right answer to this question. Mm-hmm. Whereas in andragogy, I think a lot of times the answer often is it depends. It
2: can be an unfolding journey.
1: So I learned something by reading Jane Vela's Taking Learning to Task. It's a wonderful book about, well, a lot of it's based on adult learning principles and it talks about how to create learning tasks that utilize the learner's experience. Uh, Particularly the first task um, of any general learning task is what she calls inductive. And this is where you uh, basically ask an open question to the learner about their experiences with the subject matter, right? And it's quite simple actually. Um, I, I recall not too long ago we were giving a quick Workshop on Blackboard here at the beginning of the semester. And one of the questions that we had listed was Tell us your experience with working or with teaching online or working within an LMS, something to that effect, right? So, right there, you're already legitimizing their experience up to that point and you're having them recall it, which orients them to not only what they know, but to where you're about to take the
0: lesson. I think good instructional design principles will always leverage prior knowledge. Um, regardless if you're doing pedagogy or andragogy. Um, whatever learning theory you're applying, it often, you know, good instructional design will build off of prior knowledge.
1: Wow. Stephen, you're helping me with the transitions here. So this is a great lead to our next question. Knowles has been accused of unnecessarily dichotomizing child and adult learning. Case in point, the very title of his book is The Modern Practice of Adult Education, Andragogy versus Pedagogy. Another case in point, Knowles assumes that pedagogy is synonymous with subject-centered learning, while andragogy requires problem-solving activities. So my question here is, is Knowles guilty of exalting the status of the adult learner at the expense of child education?
2: I'm not sure about that, but I try to think a little bit about how this fits in sort of a constructivist learning theory framework, where whether they're adults or children or whatever... There's some understanding that if they're taking ownership of their learning, they're building on what knowledge they already have, they're constructing understanding that makes sense to them, and perhaps there's room and there's intervention and techniques that can speak to both of those populations.
3: I think in children's learning, the only difference is that it's more guided. It can have options to allow for exploration and self-directed learning. It's just that the instructor has to be a little more prepared for how they move through that exploration.
1: The children are going to need a little more structure yes. and support, perhaps, than the adult learner, possibly. So can children learn by problem solving, or is that strictly an approach for the adult learner?
3: That is definitely an approach that children do need in their learning. Um, that's a life skill, mm-hmm. problem solving. So why shouldn't children be practicing that skill just as much as an, an adult does.
2: Yeah, we can arm them with techniques and frameworks and procedures to do that. Again, some of that structure may just be more explicit and robust than you might necessarily arm your traditional adult learner with.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Celia, question for you: um, With your experience in K twelve, how do you see some of the big differences from what we would consider a definite pedagogical? Uh, environment versus higher education, which may be somewhat to completely andragogical. What are some of the differences you see in the two?
3: The biggest difference I see is the structure and the guiding. I'm seeing it more and more. Higher ed instructors are seeing that some guidance is needed in some instructional techniques. And
0: and that seems to make sense with some of the literature showing that maybe some of our freshman and sophomore students, especially are not as mentally developed as, say, their peers were 15, 20, 30 years ago.
3: Again, I go back to that 18-year-old, you know, being transition. It's a transition year. You're moving from a lot of constructivist um, learning in, let's say, high school to all of a sudden you're supposed to be sitting in this 300-student lecture course where you're just a listener and you're not doing anything necessarily with the learning at that time. So you do need to provide some sort of transition, and I think more and more instructors are starting to learn that within higher ed. I think I could
2: sum that concept up as like it's cognitive and behavioral maturity. We make an assumption that our younger learners don't have that yet, and we make an assumption similarly that our college students do have a certain level of behavioral and cognitive maturity and can handle those other tasks that go along with learning.
1: What about the digital native and technology? Is this changing that dynamic where perhaps this digital native generation is more self-directed. If they want to know something, they can get on their phones and figure out how to Google it, for example.
0: I don't believe in the digital native. There's no such thing in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody's a digital native, but that's that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's probably some differing opinions on that.
3: I'm wary of labels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've used digital native in one of our co- uh, podcasts before.
1: I'm going to read from... I actually got that question from uh, Distance Education, a System Zoo of Online Learning by Michael G. Moore and Greg Kearsley. This classic view of the distinction between adult learners and children may be breaking down due to the influence of technology and media. For example, Prensky, 2010, argues that digital natives, in quotes, want a lot more self-control and less direction in their learning activities. Similar arguments are made by others, so the characteristics described... For the adult learner, may be increasingly true for distance learners of all ages.
2: If anything, I would suggest that perhaps this sort of population we're thinking about, digital natives, are a little bit more perhaps consumer-oriented. They're used to being able to consume information rapidly at high paces.
0: And also, I mean, to take a shot at Google and how everyone thinks it's making us dumber, I, I just want to remind everybody that 100 years ago, everybody thought textbooks were going to make us dumber. Because it was just a book of information that you didn't have to memorize. You would just go to it and look at it. And Now here we are hundred years later saying the exact same thing, except it's Google. And we exalt the textbook. Of course.
3: I like to go back to learning style. And whenever I think of the term digital native and everyone past this specific date are probably learning the same way or have the same learning style, I end up having to disagree because I do a comparison with my own children. They're four years apart, both born in as millennials, or wait, what is the term now? Generation?
0: I've lost track of the, the labels. The latest
3: generation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one has no technological skills whatsoever. He does not understand how to really work a computer. He's very basic on most, um, most computer skills. Whereas my daughter, who was born four years later, is very technology savvy. Now, does that mean one is brighter than the other? No. Does that mean that one learns differently? Yes. And I think in every aspect, with every student, you can't make the assumption that just because they are younger means that they learn a specific way.
1: Let me ask this. Is it unnecessary to acknowledge the experience that an 18-year-old or younger brings to the classroom. I mean, as Stephen said earlier, they have yet to have life experience. Well, we're talking generally speaking, of course. They don't have the life experience of a quote-unquote adult. So is it even necessary to bother asking them, what do you know about this subject, or prying for that knowledge?
3: I think that is, and I'm going back to my technology, that a lot of assumptions are made now that every student who comes in is ready to be taught using computer tools or uh, technology tools. And that's not necessarily correct. There are still a lot of students out there who don't have or who are lacking some of those skills given their own life experiences. Maybe they didn't have a lot of experiences up through their, um, in their education that provided a lot of those computer skills so that they're ready now. So making that assumption when they get to college that they have all had that same experience, you can't make that assumption. And you do have to find out what is their prior knowledge, where are they sitting in any topic.
0: And I think this is something where motivation from the andragogical principles come into play. Um, I think of my own kids, how they probably couldn't do a spreadsheet to save their life, whereas if they had to do a PowerPoint presentation or edit photos or edit video, they could do it no big deal. I mean, there there was a motivation to do something. And I think maybe that's probably something we should look at in higher ed is not assume that, again, I think anybody under the age of 30, we should not assume that they're a fully developed adult who has all the life skills to do everything that we're going to ask for them, but to discount the fact that they do have some experiences and some life skills that could be brought into play. The problem is, is that goes against the idea of the factory system of education where everyone moves as a cohort together. And I think that is probably the real crux of pedagogy versus andragogy and undergraduate higher education. I think you're
2: making a good argument too for doing some preliminary assessment of where your people, your learners are at, regardless of whether they're younger or older or anywhere in between, and maybe the framing isn't so much about using life experiences to inform their learning, but also to help them articulate their goals for the learning in that course or that module or that circumstance, so that even if they don't have the experience, they can look to a time when they will or they will use their learning toward an experience.
0: And and you know, and talking about using that knowledge, I think programs like pre-licensure nursing where you have the opportunity to use those skills very quickly in a simulation where you get a chance to practice before going into a clinical environment i think is very important I, I you know i when you think of engineering if all you do is look at engineering drawings and go over everything you need to know about engineering and you don't actually get to practice those skills into your capstone that could be a year and a half two years depending on how your program is run and so having that ability to practice sooner rather than later, I think is very important going back to active learning. Okay.
1: Well, as stated earlier in uh, 2015, 8.1 million, that's nearly half of university and college students were 25 years of age or older. So with that in mind, I would like to offer instructors who might be listening something tangible and immediately, immediately applicable for their courses. So I want to briefly go through Noel's four principles of andragogy and get your suggestions on how you could implement each one in the classroom. Bonus points if your suggestion can apply to face-to-face, hybrid, and online context. All right? So number one, adults need to be involved in the planning and evaluation of their instruction.
2: Ooh, ooh, can I go first? Please. Back to that sort of assessment thought, but um, if there's room within your content area or, or your overall approach to the course, sometimes giving those learners a little bit of, of autonomy in deciding either uh, how they'll be assessed or if there's an opportunity to do some sort of authentic project or something that speaks to those interests, even if not life experiences yet, may help them to be more self-invested in the outcomes of the course.
3: I agree allowing them to create their own focus.
1: I actually witnessed that when I was teaching English in high school, we had the students together come up with a rubric, so the instructors we led the students through creating a rubric upon which they would critique each other's spoken English performances and that would be their grade. Cool. Right, and actually that class was much more successful than the previous one I taught the previous year where I just lectured at them from the from the classroom. So that definitely does work. Okay, number two, adults learn
0: through doing even if they make mistakes.
2: Legos and sticky notes, they never go out of style.
0: I think that's where course projects really come into play. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that if you have certain milestones to evaluate during the project so that you can get that feedback and self-correct milestones. is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, take it from a project planning standpoint. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I think that's important. I think that's important for all students, I would say, not necessarily just adult learners. But, you know, if I'm working with faculty who have who has an online course where their students are distributed into other communities and, you know, this is an opportunity to where they can investigate their own community and bring the real world back into the classroom. Great advice.
1: Number three, adults learn best when the subject is of immediate use.
0: Well, I'll just piggyback on my last answer. And again, you know, you think about the purpose of online learning is to increase the access of of education to underserved populations, whether, and most of the time it's geolocation. So you have that working student who is running the family business, raising a family, et cetera, who lives two, three hours from campus, having them do something in their own community that impacts their life where they live and it's not just a class assignment, I think, again, it's a brilliant idea to, to bring higher education back into the community through the student.
2: Maybe an oversimplification, but especially when learners are maybe in fundamental theoretical courses, it's easy to get lost in theory. Mm-hmm. It really is. And maybe for your less mature students, just remembering that even simple examples can be very powerful.
1: I remember in my graduate program, at the beginning of just about every course, they would tell us, you have a project to do at the end of the semester, however, we were given a lot of leeway on what that project topic or content was going to be, so I could make it something relevant to my life, to my professional work life, for example. And that helped out a lot, because then that gave me more motivation to actually engage in it and uh, contribute.
3: All of these um, make me think about project-based learning and capstone courses, where you're kind of combining all of these different practices together.
1: I think you touch on a possible answer for number four. Adult learning is problem-centered rather than content-oriented. So my go-to here would be, do project-based learning approaches? Well, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. If you would like to learn more about andragogy and the adult learner in general, then you are off to a good start. Be sure to check out our show notes, and as a friendly reminder, there are near-infinite resources available on the subject online and in your libraries, so happy hunting. I would like to give a big thanks to our listeners for joining us today in our conversation with Jeanette Senecal, Celia Kuchwaitiwa, Stephen Crawford, and myself, Aaron Kraft. I also want to acknowledge our producer, He despises the term adult learner and much prefers the expressioned ripened neophyte instead. Ricardo Leon.
0: You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at ASU.EDU. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash I-B-D underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.
3: Okay, so can our next topic be the underlying (laughs) gynegosy? I was waiting for that. And then I interrupted. This this
0: is actually a serious book you want to add into there.